This is Talking Fluids, presented by Baxter International, where industry leaders discuss the present and future of fluid management. This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. And now, your host, Dr. Doug Hansel. I'm uh, Dr. Douglas Hansel. I'm the head of medical affairs and uh, for the uh, medication and uh, acute therapy uh, global business unit here at uh, Baxter. And joining me is um, Dr. Heath Latham, who is professor of medicine and pulmonary and critical care. Uh, he's also the director of the critical care fellowship at the University of Kansas Medical Center. So welcome Heath. Uh, and it's great to have you here with us today. Thanks Doug. Uh, today we're gonna be talking uh, a little bit about uh, some of the more recent advances in fluid management and specifically uh, also relate them to uh, COVID-19 and, and viral septic, sepsis or virus uh, septic patients. And um, Heath, it's really great to have you here because you've really been involved with a lot of sort of the advancing of uh, fluid management and sort of been working in this field for uh, uh, over the past, uh, you know, say five to 10 years, certainly when a lot of changes have taken place. And I guess, first of all, maybe take us through, uh, you know, how has your approach to fluid management changed, say in 2021 versus 2009 or, or earlier? What, how do you approach it differently today than you did, say, five, 10 years ago? Uh, if you could start there with this, I think that's a great place to begin the conversation. Yeah, you bet. Um, you know, I think, you know, over a decade ago, I was probably in the same uh, position of about everybody in the country and the world where, you know, hypotension was, well, guess we should just give more fluids. Um, and then, um, then it kind of came around as to, well, perhaps there's more directed uh, methods by which perhaps we could have some idea if a patient's going to potentially benefit from uh, more fluids versus not. Um, that came a little bit more towards the, the dynamic side of things, plus coming off of, you know, in terms of sepsis, uh, Dr. Rivers' work um, for bundled therapy. And certainly our our group, we jumped on bundled therapy. Um, I mean, such, such a significant impact in reducing mortality. And we were certainly flooding people. Um, and as we did that, uh, you know, it was, well, I think static measures can't really be the best measure. And so started working towards uh, being more cognizant about resuscitation through dynamic measures. Um, stopped with the CVPs and the static measures. And then uh, over the last five years have really tried to uh, hone our groups um, work through resuscitation by true stroke volume guided resuscitation, um, um, mostly with fluid boluses and looking for uh, changes in, in stroke volume pre and post bolus versus could also do pre and post uh, passive leg raise. I was going to ask you, you, you talked about dynamic measures, and I think um, that's certainly becoming more common across the marketplace and more common across clinical understanding. But take me through a little bit about what maybe a dynamic measure is, or take the audience through a little bit what a dynamic measure is versus static. And, and how, why do we call one dynamic and why do we call one static, I guess? Yeah, so in terms of the static side of things, that's going to be your quote unquote pressure measurements, you know, your, your CVP or your, um, you know, just blood pressure, you know, measurement, not in a, uh, you know, 
truly continuous manner versus a dynamic uh, change is something that you're clearly watching, which is still potentially volume versus pressure, but you see it change over uh, a course of an intervention. So um, again, kind of the first uh, dynamic measures that were looked at to find to be more superior or superior uh, to the static measures, um, we're really looking at changes in stroke volume um, or uh, pulse pressure um, over the course of, again, some sort of intervention. Um, but those were, th those were great in like an OR setting um, when a patient is innovated, you know, paralyzed basically, um, and you have complete uh, control of the cardiopulmonary uh, intervention or interaction uh, because of uh, then tidal volume ventilation. And so that's called the variability indices. Those certainly do predict uh, volume responsiveness uh, as long and, and very similar to the pulse pressure variation. But those variability indices have very narrow windows um, by which their accuracy um, can predict volume responsiveness. And I don't work in an operating room setting. I work in a medical ICU. And in those settings, we minimize sedation. We minimize uh, tidal volume ventilation. A lot of patients have tachyarrhythmias. And so all of those things then kind of negate, negate the accuracy of uh, variability indices. So you could still use the stroke volume and the change in stroke volume, again, from a point in which an intervention before an intervention is done again, say a fluid bolus were done rapidly. And then after that fluid bolus, what's that stroke volume look like? Or before the passive leg raise for a reversible fluid bolus, so to speak. And then afterwards, and if you get a change greater than 10% in that stroke volume, then there's a very high positive predictive value that that patient does is fluid responsive and therefore benefit from volume loading, i.e. you're going to improve stroke volume. And really, in my opinion, all fluids uh, are a drug and so you should only be giving them if there's a reason to give them. And in the case of shock, that reason to give them is you would improve stroke volume. Um, you've done some of the early work looking at outcomes in, in septic shock patients and that. Can you take us through that? Does, how does this uh, change outcomes with uh, patients and, and patient care? Uh, what's the evidence on, on that? Yeah, so as we, as we were trying to be more um, consistent about our stroke volume uh, resuscitation, um, we were looking into um, bioreactants as a, a completely non-invasive device to assess for stroke volume quickly. Um, you don't have to get an art line in place, et cetera. Um, and so when um, we had purchased these devices uh, in the first kind of six months, um, there was a kind of adoption of use over time with uh, all of our faculty in our ICU, our medical ICU. And so we went back and looked retrospectively in that first six months at patients who had severe sepsis, septic shock. Um, and if they were resuscitated by stroke volume guided resuscitation versus um, whether or not they were quote unquote usual care for us at the time, which mm -hmm. would have been 
mostly we resuscitated volume based on lactate clearance around that time and just looking at other hemodynamic parameters. And what we found is that in the group that we used stroke volume guided resuscitation, we had a significantly um, less uh, net fluid balance um, in those patients um, at the end of their ICU stay. We also saw that they were in the ICU almost two and a half days uh, less, which was most likely attributed to the fact they were on pressors about two-ish days, uh, 36 hours uh, less. Also less likely to end up on mechanical ventilation and also less likely um, to require hemodialysis. So we kind of showed that, at least in our ICU, that a guided approach um, was consistent with a lot of the literature that excess volume leads to adverse outcomes. And that, you know, if we could use uh, technology and a device and a strategy to reduce volume with better outcomes, that was uh, kind of how we then started to structure our management of our septic patients. You know, Heath, one of the things, uh, you know, I mean, and this type of work has also been shown in some of the surgical literature with similar outcomes in the pulmonary and, and renal systems. And then, um, you know, the FRESH trial followed a lot of the work that you did at, at KU and confirmed some of the things that you were seeing in the retrospective uh, look back that you saw there. You mentioned about, you know, giving less fluid. One of the things that's interesting, I think some of the across in these trials is, for instance, you look at some of the OR work, it's the amount of fluid differential is not that great. It can actually become fairly, fairly low uh, between the two arms of the study. And, you know, looking at the, the volume reduction that was seen, say, at the University of Kansas versus Fresh, that difference is less in Fresh than it was at the time, you know, that was done at the University of Kansas. I want to talk a little bit about the mechanism of action and, and sort of what's, where's the therapeutic benefit here, do we think, or what's driving do you think this is straight out fluid, um, less fluid being administered, or is it some, is there something more to it than just uh, less fluid? I mean, can we get the same effect by just fluid restricting? Why, why go through the extra efforts here? Uh, or are they in, important, do you think? So I, I guess I would say that the answer is, is probably a little bit on both sides. So I think that you could perhaps you know, have benefit from a just fluid restrictive strategy, but you're negating, uh, evaluating the patients uh, for when perhaps providing extra fluid to enhance stroke volume and therefore uh, peripheral perfusion may be of benefit. So I think both strategies um, are of importance. Um, I think the assessing for improvement in stroke volume with a, a, uh, resuscitative strategy looking at changes in stroke volume is important because you'll optimize the pump. And by optimizing the pump, you optimize cardiac output. And by optimizing cardiac output, I think we make sure that we maintain good perfusion to end organs. So I think that contributes to less likely for um, renal dysfunction, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I think on the on the, on the restrictive strategy side, I think what we get there is the reduced risk of potential toxicities of the crystalloids, et cetera, that we give. So also, as you're aware, Doug, that, you know, in the last 
you know, four to five years, there's been more and more literature also supporting the potential toxicities, particularly renal toxicities of saline, et cetera. Um, and that I think, I think that continued dosing of crystalloid fluids probably drives and continued inflammatory response. Because if we disrupt, you know, cellular structure, you're going to get cytokine release. And that's what sepsis is at the beginning. There is a definite boom, big cytokine release, antibiotics on board to try and combat that. You know, yes, we need to resuscitate to combat combat the vasodilatory state from a fluid perspective. But then if we keep giving crystalloid, the inflammatory response, I think, won't slow down or won't abate as fast. And that's that's my hypothesis as to why, Mm -hmm. at least in our study, that we saw such a significant reduced time on uh, vasopressors compared to the quote unquote usual arm where they got a lot more fluid. Yeah. No, I think that's, um, you know, there are a lot of things here, I think, to study. Uh, one of the things I was going to ask you about, I think we saw in Fresh and, and uh, certainly we hear anecdotally is, you know, patients tend to move in and out of fluid responsiveness. And so one individual, you know, uh, you know uh, at one point will be fluid responsive. You come back and check them after additional fluid or you've added a, uh, you know, a beta drug and you'll see fluid responsiveness change. And I think... Most of us tend to, certainly my sense when started to take care of these patients was you assess them and they're fluid responsive or they're not. And that's kind of the physiology they're going to stay in, which on a certain level doesn't make sense. These are usually critically ill patients. Every other aspect of their physiology is in flux and changing. Why wouldn't contractility or you know, the underlying cardiac? Do you see that as well? And, and sort of starting, may not be fluid responsive, start vasopressors uh, you know, with beta effect like levofed when they yep. become fluid responsive, uh, moving in and out, do you, is that something you commonly see, you know, with your patients or um, how active is that, do you think, in sort of assessing the uh, impact of uh, fluid uh, as well? Yeah, so I, I see both of those things. So what I really liked about uh, the FRESH trial was that, um, you know, any changes in hemodynamics that, you know, you would think might benefit from fluids, you know, prompted a PLR. And that at the end of the kind of 72 hours, uh, 82% of people needed or were fluid responsive uh, at least once. Mm-hmm. And that speaks to that variability uh, that you're talking about. And that's, and that's what, um, you know, that's, that's what we kind of try and do uh, here is that some urine output falls, pressure requirements go back up, you know, well, is that part of the fluctuation state or would they benefit from some additional uh, fluid loaning and reassess? Um, because we don't want to just crank up pressors if they could perhaps benefit from um, um, some volume loading. Yeah. The counter is also true. And this goes along with a very small trial called the sensor, uh, sensor trial that demonstrated earlier uh, initiation of norepinephrine um, had some positive um, outcome benefits versus later starting in septic patients. And I definitely have seen that where uh, patients come in, they get some initial fluids, and then you assess them for stroke volume, 
uh, responsiveness. They are not, but they're still hypotensive. You initiate them on norepinephrine and then you reassess them for stroke volume responsive. And now all of a sudden they maybe needed an extra liter of fluid, liter and a half of fluid via uh, fluid responsiveness, which I believe they benefit from. And again, I don't have a perfect uh, um, physiologic explanation for that, but I, again, hypothesize that, you know, even on the venous side, there are the alpha uh, receptors. Um, and I think there is increased tone on the venous side when we initiate uh, our vasopressors like norepinephrine and that increased vape, you know, uh, tone can then make our venous side more responsive to fluid loading. Well, I think also, you know, cardiac contractility is certainly a, an issue of stroke volume and yep. beta drug, you know, certainly has a direct impact on contractility. Sympathetic states do as yep. well. And then, you know, layering that in some of the myocardial depression that we see, you know, that uh, is thought to be some reversible with sepsis or sepsis induced, uh, you know, myocardial changes are evolving as well. So I think all that tends to come together with a group in a situation where you're in a very, um, I don't want to say fluid and I don't want to say dynamic, but a very uh, sort of changing state, if you will, uh, from a cardiac perspective. So Evolving. Um, yes, exactly. <laughs> well, I, I think there's certainly a lot, you know, to dig in and study here and, and further things to understand, but it sounds like, you know, in your mind, the evidence is pretty clear on some of the renal outcomes and the, you know, from this approach. As we've moved into and dealing with the pandemic that has swept the world over the past, you know, uh, several months, and how have you leveraged these fluid principles, if you will, into your COVID patients? Do you see difference and 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 how does COVID and severe COVID uh uh, viral sepsis compared to bacterial sepsis? And, and how do you put this together? Are they different, the same? What's your approach? So I, I, I think in general, viral sepsis is different than the bacterial sepsis. But unfortunately with COVID, um, we have seen those group of critically ill patients that have such a profound kind of cytokine release um, that they behave very similar to the bacterial sepsis, where um, they certainly are in shock um, and they do have fluid responsive. So it's, you know, it do, it does appear to be on the more vasodilatory, you know, side of side of shock or the cytokine, you know, side, uh, type of shock. Um, they can certainly also get the uh, stress induced cardiomyopathies um, just like the bacterial shock does. And so for those COVID patients, you know, that are both respiratory failure plus um, um, appear to be in septic shock or have septic shock, but not secondary to bacterial infections. Um, we are treating them very similar. So we are assessing them for volume responsiveness to um, basically resuscitate them with fluid, just like we would for our bacterial uh, septic patients. Um, but we're also being very, um, very cognizant of the fact that we don't want to just fluid overload them either because these patients obviously have ARDS um, and as a result of their COVID. So they're shocky on the sepsis side of things and they have profound ARDS 
and uh, severe ARDS. And so the ARDSnet trial, you know, did demonstrate that less fluid and a more conservative strategy at least has a shorter time on ventilator, uh, you know, outcome didn't change mortality. So we're trying to minimize our fluids from that perspective, the ARDS, but certainly still using a guided approach, a stroke volume assessment approach to make sure that we have the patients resuscitated adequately from their shock uh, perspective. Well, that's, that's great. Hey, it's been great chatting with you. And I think, uh, you know, we'll sort of wrap this up now, but there's a lot more to, uh, I, I think the, the bottom line message is stay tuned. A lot of evolving science, you know, here, yeah. fluid management uh, after a hundred years is still a very active field and, and actually heating up. This has been Talking Fluids presented by Baxter International. Find more episodes at talkingfluids.com. Baxter provided compensation to Dr. Heath Latham for his participation in this podcast. Rx only. For the safe and proper use of the products referenced herein, please refer to the appropriate operator's manual or instruction for use. CE0482. Baxter and Talking Fluids are trademarks of Baxter International Incorporated. GBU MD6 22004 version 1.0.